All right, good morning. I'm going to go ahead and get started with uh, just a quick announcement, uh, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get right into our sermon this morning. Um, so, uh, main announcement I want to make beyond what we normally do, and uh, we've been talking about that, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service, we'd encourage you to be at, at those. Um, for our teens, uh, many of you already know, but again, I always like to say it here so parents know as well, next Saturday we're having uh, an event here at the church called Snow Day. It's replacing our normal snow camp. So teens, be ready for that. Remember that's coming. It's going to be from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. Um, it's going to be a long day, but we're going to have a lot of fun. I do actually have another announcement to make about that, and that is uh, we're looking for some items that we need for some games that we're going to be playing that we have, have trouble finding. One of them is hula hoops. If you happen to have hula hoops sitting around your house and you can get them to me sometime this week, that would be great because I need a bunch of hula hoops. Um, also, and I'm looking at Ed now because I also need a lot of cardboard. So if you guys have cardboard, Ed's ignoring me now. I need cardboard as well. So if, if somebody has cardboard, that would be wonderful. Um, okay, so uh, that, if, if not, that's fine. But, I, you know, um, so we need some cardboard. We need uh, some hula hoops. And another thing we need, um, and I haven't been able to find it yet. I'm, I don't understand why, but we need, like, sleds. But we only need two, and, and they're, they might get destroyed. So if you have an old sled that you're not using anymore, maybe one of those plastic ones looking for kind of a long one, not a circle, but, I mean, even a circle will work. Just talk to me if you have an old sled, because I need two old sleds. Um, and old just meaning that you don't care if they'll get destroyed. So, um, so if you want to donate new ones, that's fine. Just know you won't get them back. Um, uh, so those are a couple things that I do need, if you could help with that. Um, also, if you have a bunch of free time on Saturday and you'd like to hang out with some teenagers, come and talk to me, okay? Because uh, we can definitely make that happen for you. Your dreams can come true. Uh, so uh, make sure you talk to me uh, if, you can, if you are looking for something to do on Saturday. Maybe you're just bored. And, and what better to do than to hang out with a bunch of teenagers? It brings your youth back. It's awesome. So, all right. So that's all my announcements uh, for this week. Uh, so again, that's Saturday. It's from 10 to 10. And by the way, if you can help, I'm not asking everyone to have to help for the full 12 hours. Um, but if a couple hours during the day, you can come up and help us uh, either through, um, you know, just, I won't call it babysitting, but just watching and making sure nobody dies. Uh, and then, uh, or to help with food, to help with cleanup, those type of things. Um, and just so everybody knows, uh, if you've, whether you're a teen or a helper, we are still going to be abiding by our EPIC guidelines, which is masks when you're not six feet or more away. So just make sure you know that. All right. So I think that's all I have to say for announcements. So I will go ahead and open our time now with prayer, and then we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 3 today. So why don't we go ahead and pray? Lord, I want to thank you <clears throat> for bringing us here today. I want to praise you. Uh, for the opportunity to worship you, the opportunity to have your word in front of us to study. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you for the stories that you've preserved uh, that can not only uh, show us what happened in history, but Lord, that can change how we might even live today. And God, I pray that as we look at this passage in Daniel chapter 3, a familiar passage to many of us, that you would allow uh, your word to really uh, just come in and make a difference in our hearts and in our minds, and Lord, that that would be lived out in the way that we choose to live. Uh, God, would you help your word today, uh, as you've promised in your word not to return uh, void, but God, that you would just allow it to go forward and change our hearts this morning. I pray for that. Change our lives with your word. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Didn't take quite long enough on my announcements, but that's okay. All right, um, so I will s slowly start for those people who are still coming in, people who haven't tuned in online yet. So um, uh, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 3, so let me just introduce that a little bit. Jan Daniel chapter 3 is the fiery furnace story. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak, and Benny, if you've watched VeggieTales, this is that story. Um, and uh, I know a lot of us are familiar with it, and maybe not everyone here, I don't know everyone's background, but I know that if you've... Uh, been in the church for any number of time, or for any number of years, um, that this story uh, has made it in almost every children's Bible. It's made it in every Sunday school curriculum. Uh, even people who don't go to church oftentimes will know this story. Uh, and it's, it's very popular in Christian culture. It's very popular because it's got some really neat elements in it. Um, 
But there's a couple things today that I hope that when we look at this, we can go a little bit deeper and see a little bit more. And maybe we're going to see the same thing that we've seen every other time we've read this story, because I don't know exactly where each of you are at. But I'm hoping by the end of it, maybe we can understand uh, that uh, there is a key to this story that's the key to the whole book of Daniel that we've already looked at. So I'm just going to go ahead and launch it out there, kind of a spoiler. Daniel 3, just like the rest of the book of Daniel, is not about people. It's not about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's about God. And we got to keep that in mind. Because a lot of times we look at this story and we just say, we need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We need to be like them. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to be faithful the way they're faithful, but I think the meaning, and as we look at chapter 3, we look at the whole of the book of Daniel, as Pastor Justin has already told us for the first several, uh, for the first two chapters, the first three sermons we've looked at, it's about God. It's about his sovereignty. It's about what he's doing. It's about who he is. It's not about what we do or what people do or who they are. And so that's going to be important as we go forward. And I'll talk a little bit more about that after I give you an illustration. So you guys will see uh, that the title for today's message is obviously uh, supposed to be a, you know, get you to think about uh, the phrase, may the force be with you. Maybe you guys have watched Star Wars, maybe you haven't. But even if you haven't watched Star Wars, this is kind of like a familiar story in the Bible. Even if you haven't watched Star Wars, you kind of have heard of the force, I would assume. If you haven't, I don't know where you've been living, but that's okay. So uh, in, in the Star Wars movie saga, uh, in all of Star Wars, really, there is, a, there is one element that is in everything, and um, they call it the Force. Um, the Force is this power that is drawn from all living things in their world, and it controls things. And, and the thing about Star Wars, if you watch it, is the, kind of the whole point of what's trying to happen is these people are trying to figure out how they can harness the Force for themselves to use it. Now, some people, like Darth Vader, are using it for evil. They can choke people even though they're not touching the person. Uh, they can, or like the Emperor can shoot lightning. Uh, these are Force powers. Or the, the good Jedis will use it uh, in different ways for good and, and use persuasion and be able to convince somebody to do something even if they don't want to. And they can do move objects and all these other things. And in the, the Star Wars saga, this becomes uh, very important because you can, you can use the Force, you can tap into the Force, this life force that is in everything, and you can use it to your own whims, whatever you wish to use it for, for good or for bad, it doesn't matter, but the force that is everywhere and in all things, you use it. And the thing is, the force is always there, but the force is impersonal. It doesn't, it's not, they don't call it God, but that's almost in Star Wars what they're trying to point out, is to try to say, look, we've got this religion, we've got this God, and it's the force. Well, in today's message, we're not talking about may the force be with you, but may the fourth be with you. And I know this is often used on May 4th, but this is beyond that. We're going to see in this story today, and you guys already know because many of you know this story, that in the furnace, after when we get through all this, after we read this, there is a fourth person that is with the three guys in the fiery furnace. And I want us to focus on the fourth. Now, I'm not saying, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm not even going to go there. But the fourth is supposed to remind us that God is always with us. So there, I've told you ahead of time where we're going to get to by the end of our sermon. So there's not going to be any question, but we are going to have to take a journey to get there. And so the thing that's different about the fourth, God's presence, God's presence is not like the force. It is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is everywhere, and he is all-powerful, and he knows everything, and that much is true. But unlike the force, our God actually is sovereign and acts on his own and can't be wielded or used for someone's purposes. To just decide that, oh, I'm going to use God here, use God there, then the force really isn't sovereign. Actually, God is sovereign, the force isn't, because the force can be manipulated and used by people. But God is sovereign all the time and will always be at work no matter what. And so whereas in the Star Wars saga they want to decide whether the force is strong with them. That's, is the force with you? We talk about 
is God with us. And we know from the Bible that God is with us wherever we're at, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. And if this is one of the most important things that we can understand from the whole Bible is that God is with us because other religions, they don't believe this. Their gods are off somewhere else just watching and waiting for us to screw up, but God is with us. And so I've gotten way ahead of myself. So, hey, there's my conclusion. We could be done. But we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, Dive into Daniel chapter 3. We're going to see what we need to understand about what happens in this story. But before we get there, so let's do a little bit of review just over the last uh, couple of chapters that we've looked at. First of all, I want to talk about Daniel, uh, the book as a whole. Uh, Daniel, written by Daniel, okay? So, uh, but we understand that as we look at everything that happens in the book of Daniel, as Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon from Judah, they're living in the midst of Babylon, and we're going to see God's faithfulness to his people during the book of Daniel. And we looked at the fact, and when we looked at the overall theme, when Justin was talking about this, he said, uh, the overall theme of Daniel, we could call it the gospel of God's sovereignty, the good news of God's sovereignty. That's what we can look at when we see the book of Daniel is there is good news that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God is faithful. So the gospel of God's sovereignty is what the whole book is about. Remember, this is not about people. This is not about Daniel. This is about God and his sovereignty, the gospel of God's sovereignty. In Daniel 1, uh, we saw a key point, and this was that God will enable his faithful people to endure even through exile. But notice here, it's not about the people's ability to endure, but it's about God's enabling, his gift. God will enable the faithful people, his faithful people, to endure even through exile. And so that's what we looked at in Daniel chapter 1. And then in Daniel chapter 2 over the last couple weeks, this is a little longer one, but it's God alone has the wisdom and might to rule and explain history and his eternal kingdom will finally replace all human kingdoms. So we've seen that in Daniel chapter 2. Again, notice that on your outline and up here on the PowerPoint, God is italicized to point out again that so far in the first couple chapters of Daniel, and the same will be true all throughout the book, it's about God and what he does and who he is. In Daniel 1, we see that he's the enabler. In Daniel 2, we see that he is the only one who has wisdom and might to rule. He is the ruler over this world. And so as we know these things, now we move into chapter 3. And what we're going to see in chapter 3, main point, and then we'll read the passage. Main point as we read this, I want you to listen for this. The main point is this. God alone is worthy of our worship and trust as he is faithful to his faithful people. Again, God alone is worthy of our worship and trust as he is faithful to his faithful people. Many times when we read this story, we read it in light of how faithful Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were to their God. And that is true. But even more so, I believe we can see that God is faithful to his people. And that never changes. So with that all in our background, let's go ahead and read chapter 3. I don't have the text on the screen, so you're going to have to open your Bible, get out your phone, whatever you might have, and we're going to read this. It's a long chapter, so I didn't put it all on the PowerPoint. Follow along. I know many of you know this story. I'm going to do my best to get through it quickly while at the same time making sure we hear what's happening. All right, Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come, or of all the, of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward to maliciously accuse the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down on and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a, bire, a fire, burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He he declared to his counselors, "'Did we not cast three men bound into the fire?' They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I will make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, and there is no other god who is able to rescue in this Way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Long chapter, 30 verses. You probably already guessed this is going to be a long sermon. Here we go. So let's look at what happens in this passage. And I am going to try to go quickly. We've got a lot of verses to get through, but I think we can kind of sum it up in pretty easy. Because there's a lot of repetition here, if you didn't notice as I was reading it. Um, and by the way, the repetition probably is Daniel's way of kind of uh, bringing some humor. Uh, and I know we don't see that necessarily, but I think Daniel is pointing out through this whole chapter how ludicrous this whole thing is. Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's crazy. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of repetition, so we will be able to just lump these things together. First 12 verses, we're going to look at the challenge. The challenge that's made. Uh, and the challenge... Uh, it comes from Nebuchadnezzar. And we see that it starts out, Nebuchadnezzar sets up his golden image. Nebuchadnezzar sets up his golden image. Notice that the word sets up are in quotes here. Um, 
Setup appears seven times in this chapter. Another, it's a repetition. Seven times in this chapter, the words are used that Nebuchadnezzar is setting up this image. <clears throat> That's going to be very important because it actually will give us a little bit of insight into what we looked at last week. This is a direct assault to God being the one who is the only one that really has power to set up kings and kingdoms. In Daniel 2, 20 through 21, uh, we want to read that and see this. In, in Daniel chapter 2, 20 through 21, and Pastor Justin talked about this last uh, the last couple weeks, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings, and watch this, and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And this is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar as he's, as he's thinking about all of this and, and he's going through this process of interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if we remember that. And Daniel gives all credit to God. And in the end of chapter 2, then Nebuchadnezzar seems to say, okay, this God that interpreted my dream, yes, he is this God that he says he is. He's sovereign over everything and we should worship him. But then in the very next thing we read, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth of 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The idea of set up comes over and over again in what we see Nebuchadnezzar doing, and I don't know his motivation, okay? But he is really challenging God. He's saying, look, God is the one who says he sets up kings, but look, I'm going to set this up. I'm going to allow people to see how great and wonderful I am. Surely it's made of gold. I'm sure it's an allusion back to the dream he had where he is the head of gold on the statue that he had the dream of. And so maybe he's trying to say, well, God, you know what? You think you can set things up, but I'm going to show you that I'm even stronger. I think that might be happening. Or maybe he's just thinking, well, if I, if I don't have that much, if I don't have forever to be king, I guess I'm just going to make the most of it now and, and get as much honor and respect and worship as I can now before I'm gone. I, I don't know what his motivation truly is, but I know it's one way or another. It's pride. And, <laughs> So my question I ask myself, is he foolish or just full of pride? And I think there's a little bit of both here. I expect that he's full of pride in some way, shape, or form. There's no question. And we see that even in the words that he uses when we keep seeing set up, set up, set up. He's doing it in his own strength. He's setting up a kingdom that is contrary to what God has set up. And actually, we've found this in history, uh, interestingly enough. I thought I quoted it here, but I don't think I put it on my PowerPoint. Oh, there it is. Yep, okay. There is a quote that was found of, that presumably is from Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so it's from his time. And it's interesting that this is a quote that was found in some literature that they found. And let's read the quote, and this will tell us what his heart was like. I have a pretty good idea. It says, Besides my statue as king, I wrote an inscription mentioning my name. I erected for posterity. May future kings respect the monument. Remember the praise of the gods. He who respects my royal name and who does not uh, abrogate my statutes and not change my decrees, his throne shall be secure. His life lasts long and his dynasty shall continue. <laughs> Those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty sure... He is directly attacking and challenging God's sovereignty, right? In this last section here, he's saying that who is the one who can set up thrones that will secure? Who is the one that can make life last long? Who is the one that dynasty can continue? Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar, according to him. I don't know how long it's happened. We don't know for sure how long between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But either he didn't get it at all in chapter 2 or he's already forgotten i'm not sure but obviously pride has overtaken nebuchadnezzar and so he sets up this golden image then we see that nebuchadnezzar takes it one step further okay so he sets up the image he's challenging god and then all of a sudden we see that nebuchadnezzar demands worship again this is a word that's going to be repeated over and over again throughout this passage this idea of worship this is not just about political loyalty. He didn't just set up this image to be an uh, image to say, I am loyal to the king. No, he wanted worship. And odds are he wanted worship to his gods, the Babylonian gods, but also it seems here that he wants worship for himself. And so this pride we see even gets worse and worse. He not only sets up the image, but then he says, hey, we're going to play all this worship music and you're going to Worship the image that I have set up. 
worship the image, and by worshiping the image, they are worshiping a false god. Whether the false gods that the Babylonians follow or Nebuchadnezzar himself, either way, not the true god. He goes from in chapter 2 saying that God is a great god and that God is the ruler of everything, and now he's going and saying, but you need to worship me and my gods. Something crazy has changed here. It's not just a monument, but this is an idol representing false worship. And so, then enter our other characters in this story. Nebuchadnezzar does all this, we see his pride, and then the Chaldeans come in. Now, we've been talking about the Chaldeans for several weeks. The Chaldeans are like the, the sorcerers, the magicians, the, the ones that are kind of higher up in the level of things when you're talking about Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar were ready to kill them all in, the, in chapter 2, remember, because they couldn't interpret the dream. And then Daniel comes in with the help of, the, of his three friends after they prayed, and, and God interprets it through him. And, and then all of a sudden, all the wise men, are, are all the, the Chaldeans are saved, uh, but um, I think there's still there's a lot of jealousy that's obviously under the surface because then the Chaldeans come and they accuse the three Jews. So what do we see happening as they accuse the three Jews? Um, so Nebuchadnezzar is looking for all of this. Okay, verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. This... We're going to be looking at chapter 6 in a little while uh, and Daniel in the lion's den and something similar happens there. I think we see something very similar happening that happens in the lion's den and these guys are jealous. They don't like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego because they have been promoted to a place where they want to be and so they're like, all right, this is our opportunity to take them out. And so they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they accuse the three Jews. And what do they accuse the three Jews of? Well, and I say the three Jews only because it's easier than saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a hundred times today. Um, uh, but the, the Chaldeans accuse these three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, um, listen, they, what do they accuse them of? Well, they accuse them of something that actually is true. They didn't bow. They didn't worship. They didn't do what Nebuchadnezzar had asked all the people to do. He brought in all these people from the whole known world that are all over the province of Babylon. And we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been promoted to be over part of Babylon. And so they're there with the rest of the rulers of all the different areas that, that Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over. And they're all coming together because, again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want just a few people's worship. He wants the whole world to worship him so that they won't rebel. And he wants them all united under this false idol. But yet... The three Jews don't bow, and the Chaldeans see this, and so they accuse them. Now, I'm going to take a break here for a second and say, in this passage, the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not mentioned. Very interesting, because up to this point, they are mentioned, as Daniel talks about them. I think this is another way... Remember what their names when they were changed from Hebrew to, uh, to the Babylonian uh, language. When they were changed, their names were changed to honor false gods. Very interesting then in this passage we see these words, their names used over and over and over again by not only the king but also Daniel as he writes. I, I, and this is kind of a guess, so I'm just going to say that because I, I can't prove it. But I almost think that Daniel is pointing this out that their names don't dictate who they are. Their names don't, find, don't define their actions. The outside forces can't change them into what they were meant to be. Nebuchadnezzar's point was he wanted to change these men into false worshipers. But just because someone tried to change their name doesn't mean that, they are, that God is somehow unable to work in their lives. And so really, these three names actually become almost uh, ironic because they're... Supposed to be worshiping other gods, but they're only worshiping the true God. And so that's, as we talk about the three Jews, I want us to remember that that's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. That's what they're called because it's reminding us that they have been changed, that people tried to change them, but they did not change, that they would not define their actions based on what others expected of them. And we also see here that the Chaldeans, as they accuse these three Jews, they use everything in their disposable. 
and they're disposable. <laughs> in their disposal. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, and every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, as if he hadn't know what he said. Uh, but they're reminding Nebuchadnezzar, hey, this is what you said. And basically, they're just building Nebuchadnezzar up. Like, hey, you know you said this. You know, we're all doing it. This is great. You, we're building you up. Well, except for these three guys. You should deal with them. And that's where we see point two of our story, the confrontation. Verses 13 through 15. Nebuchadnezzar angrily summons the three Jews. Uh, Now notice when I say angrily summons the three Jews that this is not just normal anger. This is extreme and aggressive anger. Actually, the way the passage says it in verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego be brought why is he so angry? Well, because he feels like they, he said, worship me, and they're not worshiping the false thing that he had set up. They're not worshiping him. They're not doing what he asked them to do. And the Chaldeans have just charged Nebuchadnezzar up. Like, can you believe that these three guys would do this? And so Nebuchadnezzar is angry. He's furious. If you guys have ever seen Alice in Wonderland, I, I get the I, I have this picture of the the what is it the Queen of Hearts or whatever she is. She and you know when she's off with their heads, like she's just screaming because somebody painted her roses red or something like that. So like, but this is so much worse. Nebuchadnezzar is just ready to like he is just fuming, and that's going to be important because let's be let's be real. When pride overwhelms us, when anything attacks that pride, anger overwhelms us, and so Nebuchadnezzar is angry furious rage at his power being questioned. And then in, part, in this confrontation, so the, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they come. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar questions the three Jews and questions God himself. He questions the three Jews and really questions God himself. We see that here in these couple verses. And he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, really, is this true? Is it true that you did not serve my gods or worship this image that I've set up? And he said, wait, okay, all right, so I'm, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. You can do it if you want to do it. And if you do it, then everything's good. That's basically what he says. So he's really angry. He gives them a second chance, and he's questioning them. I think part of the reason he might be questioning them is because he probably has some level of respect for them. He's watched them and seen what God has done in, their, uh, in how they've ruled over the provinces that they were given. And, and so I think he wants to give them the second chance. But in the midst of this... Then he says this crazy, horrible, blasphemous thing that shows that he is the most prideful person that maybe has ever walked the face of the earth. I don't know. But then he goes and he says, listen, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't do what I say. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Wow. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously thinks that he is... God, the God of gods. No God can deliver people out of his hand. Curious thing in Isaiah 43, 13. What does God say? Isaiah 43, 13. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? This is the true God saying that no one can deliver from my hand. That's what God says. And now Nebuchadnezzar says the same thing. And did he know this verse? Probably not. But the point is his pride has overtaken him to the point where he doesn't even give God any credit. He goes from chapter 2 seeming like he's getting it. Now chapter 3, he is about as far off as you can get. And so he says this blasphemous statement. And so he's not only questioning the three Jews and questioning why they're not worshiping, but he's questioning God himself. This does not go well. This will never go well. Then in the midst of this, and we already we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but Nebuchadnezzar threatens the three Jews with death. Nebuchadnezzar threatens the three Jews, Jews with death. So he questions them and says, here's your second chance, and if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you, and nobody can do anything about it. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says to them. Which leads us to our third point in this story, which is the conviction. Now I'm using this word in two ways. The conviction in which they are convicted of their crime. Also the conviction at which the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the conviction to follow God at all costs. And we see both of these things happen in verses 16 through 23. 
We see that the three Jews refused to worship anyone other than God. The three Jews refused to worship anyone other than God. They don't bow, and they say, we're not going to bow. And in fact, they, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and, he will de- furnace, and he will deliver us from out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Notice that. We will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that you have set up. They leave no question that they will not do this. Their conviction in the truth that God is the only God worthy of worship and trust, and they prove it here by saying to Nebuchadnezzar, when he has their lives in his hands, they say, we are not going to worship your gods or your image that you have set up. And so they refuse. And in the midst of their refusal, we see that the three Jews trust in God's faithfulness even in the face of death. Not only are, do they see God as the only one who is worthy of worship, but they see God as the only one worthy of all of their trust. In the face of death, we see this. Now, I started questioning and asking myself, why? Why would, these, would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be so ready to trust in God's faithfulness even in the face of death? obviously it's because they have a relationship with God. They understand the covenant they have with him. But as Pastor Justin has done a few times as we've gone through the book of Daniel, he's also moved over to the book of Isaiah. And I have to wonder if they hadn't read these verses. They probably I don't know, but these verses in Isaiah, they at least know this about God. And I want to read Isaiah 43, 1 through 15. We already read one of these verses, but I want to read the whole context. Isaiah 43, 1 through 15. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because we don't have time. But I think when we read this, we will understand what gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the courage to say, I'm going to trust God. And that trust is even seen in saying, even if he doesn't deliver us, even if things don't go well, I'm going to trust God no matter what. What would cause them to say that? What kind, what would give them that faith? And I would say God himself, the knowledge of who he is, gives them that faith. So I want to read from Isaiah 43, 1 through 15, and this will be up on the screen. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed that when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice." I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. A lot lot there. But what would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been believing? It's the same thing that we can believe. It's the same thing that that, uh, Israel was called to believe. And that is that God is a Redeemer. He is a Protector. He is the only Savior. He is the only God. He is the only King. And no one else is worthy of any trust or any worship, including Nebuchadnezzar or any other God. Isaiah 43 says it very, very plainly. He, God is the only God. All other gods are just fake idols and they should not be worshipped or 
or followed in any way, shape, or form, and that God is the Holy One of Israel. God is the King. He is the only King. And so surely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether they knew this passage specifically or just knew who God was, they knew that God is the only God, the only King, the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of trust, and they show it here. And again, this phrase of even if not shows faith is not found in our circumstances, but in God himself. When they say here, God will deliver us, but even if not, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood one thing. Their faithfulness did not depend upon whether or not they were going to die or not. That didn't even enter. That wasn't the point. The point was God can save us. He will save us. He's got the power and all the things he needs and we'll pray that he saves us. But even if he didn't, even if he doesn't, we worship him alone. We trust him alone because he is in control. That's basically what they're saying. See, it's not about circumstances. Faith is not found in our circumstances. One of my favorite quotes that I've seen and heard so many different times, and and it's this quote, faith is not knowing what tomorrow holds, but knowing who holds tomorrow, right? That, that is so powerful. Faith is not about knowing what tomorrow holds, but it's about knowing who holds tomorrow. We don't have faith because of what circumstances might change. We have faith because we know God will never change. That is where faith is found, and that's what we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we see this. They, they refuse. They trust in God over Nebuchadnezzar, and so then Nebuchadnezzar condemns the three Jews to death in the fiery furnace. Well, or so he thinks. We, are, we read here that he heats up the furnace seven times hotter. This doesn't mean literally seven times. This, just is a, this is just a metaphor to say it's as hot as you can possibly get it. He stokes that thing. And I think this is kind of, I think maybe literarily, maybe it's just, I, like, I think this is kind of to point out, like, the heat of the fire is to kind of reflect how hot Nebuchadnezzar is, right? So he's just... Hot with anger, right? He's just burning up. I have like uh, inside out in my mind with, with anger and there's flames coming out of his head, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is this, is this angry and he's like, we're going to get this furnace so hot nobody can survive it. And in fact, some of his most mighty people end up not surviving the fire. And in goes the three Jews. Interesting to also point out that he was willing to sacrifice his own people just to get back at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to avenge his own honor. Again, his pride is on full display. And then we see the consequences. The consequences of what happens in all of this. And we see the first consequence, and by consequence I don't mean in a bad way. Consequences are the results. Nebuchadnezzar witnesses God's presence with his people. Nebuchadnezzar, the prideful king who is trying to receive worship, looks and sees that God is with his people. He witnesses it. We see that there is a fourth man in the furnace. Three were thrown in, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, whoa, wait a minute, didn't we just put three in? And everybody's like, yeah. And he's like, but there's four. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Maybe your translation says the son of God. I do need to talk about this for a second. Who is this fourth person? Some people believe that this is a Christophany, that it's the son of God showing up in the Old Testament before he would come to the earth as Jesus. Um, some people believe it's an angel. I don't know. And I don't think we're supposed to know. I don't think it really matters because I think the point here, whether it's an angel or whether it's the son himself, God is protecting and God is with his people. Even if it's just an angel, and just an angel, that is a symbol of his presence. It's a symbol of his power. It's a symbol of his protection. If it is a Christophany, then yes, of course, it's, it's great for us to think about how Jesus would be with them, like, cause Jesus is with us. So I'm not gonna go either way on this. Everybody has a different opinion. I would probably lean towards it's just being an angel, but either way, we see that God is showing up to protect his people. God is there. The presence of God is seen in this fourth presence. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees this. And so therefore, going back to our title, may the fourth be with you. This fourth, the the fourth is going to represent God's presence. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees this. 
And we see then that the three Jews are miraculously spared from the effects of the fire. They're miraculously spared not only from dying, but everything. Their garments. Listen, they went into the fire that was seven times hotter that killed the men that threw them in, and their clothes aren't even burned. They don't even smell like smoke. I don't know about you, but every time I have a campfire, like I have to take like three showers before the smell of smoke is off of my body and out of my hair and everything. But no, nothing. No smell of smoke. It didn't touch them. The fire did not touch them. God protected his people. He miraculously spared them from the effects of the fire. But notice, God didn't spare the three from going into the fire. He could have done that. He could have showed up and said, Nebuchadnezzar, don't throw them in. Quit being so prideful. He didn't. They get thrown into the fire, but then we see that God spares them and saves them and protects them through the fire. No doubt they would have felt some Feelings of fear. I mean, they're going into a fiery furnace. No doubt there would be concern there, but they go in, and God didn't keep them from that fire, but he does preserve them through it. That's important for us to understand, too. I found this this quote that has been quoted by many people, and I will bring this up again when we're in chapter 6. But I believe the original person uh, was named Henry Martin, uh, who wrote this. He was a missionary And this is the quote that I want to read and I want you to think about. He said this, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. What was the point that he's making here? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego understood it. That fire, if God didn't want that fire to kill them, it wouldn't. If God wanted the fire to kill them, then it would have. But the point is, the fire isn't what has the power, it's God. And so we can believe this. If if we live a life in which we are being faithful to God and we are looking at his faithfulness and, and trying to follow after him and we are doing God's work, then we are immortal. We can't die until God says it's our time. And if God has more for us to do, then he's gonna let us do that. No matter what we face. Now we don't know, maybe that means if we go into a fire, we will be burned. But God is still God, whether we are or whether we're not, because the Lord reigns. I think that's a powerful thing for us to think about. Whenever we come into a situation where we are fearful and afraid or trying to figure out what's going on or figure out if God is going to protect us to say, you know what, God's got this in his hands and I am immortal until his work in me is done. He reigns. Something we can consider. As I said, we'll talk about that in chapter 6 as well. So we see the consequences so far. God, or Nebuchadnezzar witnesses God's presence. The three Jews are miraculously spared from the effects of the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar bears witness to the power of God. We see this at the end of the chapter, right? So we see towards the end he comes out and uh, he says, um, basically, nobody says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nobody do it or I'm going to kill you. I don't, you know, I don't think he's really quite still getting it. Because I still think he thinks that it's his job to somehow defend God or to make people worship God. But there's still pride here. But he does say, God has spared these men because, now he attributes it to their faith. But then he sees there's no other God that could deliver his servants this way. And so, again, just like in chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar seems to get it. Let's continue to walk through the book of Daniel and see if that's true. To be honest with you, sometimes I just don't know. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most flip-floppy people I've ever seen. (laughs) However, at the end of this, we see that God used this situation in a crazy way. Think about this. At the beginning of our story, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, "Here's here's my statue, I set it up, worship my gods, worship me, I am God. There is no God who can deliver out of my hand. That's where Nebuchadnezzar starts. That's where our chapter starts. At the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar himself is saying, yeah, God's the one that's powerful. God changes everything, but this was God who did it. Not Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Not Nebuchadnezzar. This was God. God used this whole situation, this whole story, to get glory, to receive glory in all the world. What Nebuchadnezzar started out looking for glory for himself, at the end of our story, God receives the worship. God receives the glory. That's what he does. Nobody's attempts at trying to strip God of his glory or his power will ever succeed. 
forever. Because God is in control. God is sovereign. The gospel of his sovereignty is on display in chapter 3. So that's the story. Let's look at some implications. Let's look at some implications, and I will try to do this quickly. Implications, first of all, and I just said it, no one can challenge the sovereignty and power of God. No one can challenge the sovereignty and power of God. Even if the world doesn't perceive this, we can find hope in this truth. Listen, we live in a world where people think like Nebuchadnezzar. People think that they can control this world. People think that they can influence this world and they can change things and they can make things happen. People think that they are sovereign, whether political leaders or whether it's just people in general. They think that somehow the power lies in their hands, on their shoulders, and it's not true. God is the one who is all-sovereign and all-powerful. No person is that. And the world doesn't comprehend that, but we need to comprehend that so that, A, we don't look at people and think, wow, they've got, they, we have no hope. The Jews looked at Nebuchadnezzar and they could have said, there's no hope, this guy, he's going to kill us. But there's always hope because God is always sovereign and always powerful. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16. Read these words with me. By the way, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. You know, he was taken captivity from Judah and he's saying these things. And again, I don't know how much they would have talked. I don't know how much they would have read each other. But here we see Jeremiah during this time. This is what he says about God. He says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because, of the, because the nations are dismayed at them. Right? So again, we're different than the world. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. And his wrath, the earthquakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did, make, did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind to its storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Nothing can challenge the power and sovereignty of God. False gods are nothing, and people who follow them, I'm quoting the Bible, are stupid. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we even forget this. I think sometimes we can put things and think that somehow other people or other things in our lives somehow have more power or more sovereignty than God. And we do worship false idols. Money, people, power. Keep going, you can fill the blank in. But no one and nothing can ever challenge the sovereignty and power of God. That gives us hope and trust because we know he is everything. He is the only king. Moving on, we see another implication that faithfulness to God is only based on his faithfulness. Again, a lot of times we read this story and it's all about, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were so faithful to God. And yes, they were, but they were faithful to God because of his faithfulness to them. It's not the other way around. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 1 and 
moving into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God which was given for you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In this verse, we see that it talks about how we are not lacking that we are waiting for the revealing of Jesus. Who are, we're being sustained to the very end. We're being held guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why is all that true? Not because we can do it, but because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. His faithfulness empowers our faithfulness. It's not the other way around. We cannot somehow manufacture our own faithfulness and then if we're faithful enough to God then he'll be faithful to us that's not how it works God is the ultimate ultimate example of faithfulness and we simply follow in his footsteps again Hebrews 10:23 says something very similar let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering so let's start there so we're holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering That seems like we're doing it. But then what is the last phrase? For he who promised is faithful. His faithfulness allows us to hold fast to the confession of our hope, the gospel, that Jesus came, died, rose again, is coming again, that he is the one who is in control of all things, that he is reigning, he is faithful, and therefore we can hold fast to him. We don't hold fast to him so that he'll hold fast to us. He holds fast to us and that allows us to hold fast to him. It's all about him. By the way, as we talk about this, Jesus himself, when he's on the earth, sets the example for us to follow in faithfulness. And we talk, as we think about being faithful, we need to look to our ultimate example, who is Jesus, Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Remember during his temptation in the wilderness, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him to all the kingdoms of the world, or showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said the very similar thing. But again, Jesus is our example He is faithful. He would not serve anyone or worship anyone other than God himself. And so we need to follow that example as well. Finally, our final implication this morning. God, the fourth, is with us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in. God is with us whatever situation we find ourselves in. This is important. This is what we see in Daniel chapter 3. What protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire? It wasn't their faith. It wasn't fireproof clothes. It was the fourth one in the fire with them. It was God's presence that protected them. It was God's protection. They did not earn it. It was given. And we see this happening in their story, but we also see that in our lives. No matter what we ha- what happens, no matter what we go through, God is always with us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus is about to leave the earth. What does he say before he leaves? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, again, sovereignty, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So many times we look at the Great Commission and we focus on the commission part. We focus on the commandment that we need to go, therefore, and make disciples. And that's not wrong. We should do that. But on the bookends of Jesus' command, he says, first of all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am sovereign over all. And then on the other end, he says, and by the way, I am sovereign over all. I am the king. I have all authority. But not only do I have all authority, but then he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The king who has all authority, all sovereignty, all power is with us. Not distance, watching over us, hoping we do the right thing. He is with us always, always. Always means always. 
Always doesn't mean just some of the time. Always doesn't just mean once in a while when we feel like it. Always means always. Jesus is with us, and we see that even in the presence of the Holy Spirit as he comes in the book of Acts. God is always with us. Hebrews 15, 5 through 6, reminds us of the same thing. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So knowing that truth, so we can confidently, confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because he's always with us, we can confidently say, with confidence, not with vague, maybe, thinking, hopefully, maybe God's really, maybe he'll see us through. No, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And I don't know where we're headed, but I don't, I know it's not going to be, it's not a good direction from what it looks like. And there's going to be times that we are going to be tested and burned and we're going to be there's going to be trials that we're going to be facing but we can be confident that we can face those trials because God is faithful he is our helper and no one can do anything to us unless he allows it God is always with us and so we must have confidence even in the midst of our fear three questions that I'll quickly ask you to think about First of all, have you submitted to God's sovereignty in your life? The first and really only way we can do that is by surrendering to him, by believing in the gospel, that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserved. He died, it so, that he, he died so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have our relationship restored with God so that we can have eternal life with Jesus, not only now but forever. And he did that through his death and then through his resurrection where he defeated sin and death. We know this gospel, but it's his sovereignty that it was his, this is how God chose to save people. And it's only that way. It's only through Jesus. Have you submitted to God's sovereignty? Have you surrendered to him? Have you acknowledged that he is the only one who is all-powerful and you need him to save you? Just cry out to him for salvation. Trust in him and turn away from how your, your sin and from your mistrust and trust him. My question for all of us then also is, are you trusting in God's faithfulness alone? Are you trying to power your way through life by feeling like if I can just be faithful enough to God, then somehow he'll be happy with me? Would you just reverse your thinking and just... Think about and meditate on God's faithfulness. And when you do that, then it'll be natural to be faithful to him. It's his faithfulness that's important, not ours. The, I don't have this verse right off the bat, but you know many, there's the verse that says, if we are faithless, he is faithful. The point is, God is always faithful, even when we tip and totter and can't quite do it. He is faithful. So trust in his faithfulness. And finally, have you forgotten that God is always with us? Have you forgotten that God is always with us? Because the thing is, when life gets tough, we need to remember that he is with us, right beside us. He's the fourth. He's right there with us. But also, he's always with us, so be careful how you live. Because he's right there. It can be comforting, it could also be convicting, and I think that's the point. He is always with us, all times. Trust in that. Before I close in prayer, I have one final passage that I want to read as I close. There's one passage in the New Testament that sums up Daniel chapter 3. It's in 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Okay, in 1 Peter four twelve through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you would share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. It, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So if you are suffering, or when we will suffer, that last verse, when we face the fiery trial, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do not forget that he is with us. Do not forget that he is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are walking with us. God, you will protect us. You will guide us. That there's nothing we really can fear because we know that everything's in your hands. Would you help us to trust your sovereignty even in those moments of concern and fear and misunderstanding? Would you help us to trust your faithfulness? Not to lean on our own faithfulness or our own works, but to lean only upon you, your faithfulness, and your presence with us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.